Colossians chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me say just a few things that are of great importance. One of the most important things about Bible study, whether you're reading your Bible or studying your Bible, we need to always consider the context. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you ignore the context. Reminds me of some of those folks that uh, for their morning devotion, they brag about instead of having a Bible reading plan, they just open up the Bible and wherever it falls open, that's where they read for the day. Uh, Or if they're looking for a particular verse or something, a word from God, that would encourage them in a time of need. They've got the idea, well, I just open it up and God knows what I need and, uh, you know, he'll, He'll give me the message I want for that day. It reminds me of the fellow that decided to do that and so he just opened the Bible and he looked down. The first verse he saw was the verse that said Judas went out and hung himself. And he thought, well, you know, that, I don't know what kind of a message that is, but it's not what I need today. I'll try it again. And so he closed the Bible, opened it up, and fell open to the other verse that says, go and do thou likewise. And he thought, well, surely that's not what God's telling me to do, so I'll try it again. And he opened the Bible again, and it said, and whatsoever thou doest, do thou quickly. So... You want to make sure you don't study your Bible in that fashion. Now, I mention that uh, for the sake of reminding you that as we look at our text this morning, we need to do so by keeping it in context. And the first two verses of chapter 1 helps us to do exactly that. This letter was written by Paul from prison, by the way. And he tells us in verse 2 that it was written to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. And then in verse 3 he tells us that he had heard about their faith in Christ and of their great love for the saints. But then he goes on and reminds us that he is writing to warn them about false teachers who would lead them astray. In chapter 2 and verse 8, he said that they would do so through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world. And strangely enough, today, the only sign of Christianity in that location today is a little plaque that is buried under a Muslim mosque that was meant simply as a statement of appreciation to the man that, that is believed to have started the church. What a sad indictment against that church at some point in their generation. So eventually what Paul feared happened. The succeeding generations had been led astray. Verse 2 tells us that they were in Christ. But somewhere along the line, the church lost sight of something. And of course, the question is, what in the world would it be that they forgot that they lost sight of that led to their demise? Well, our text, I believe, answers that. If you look at chapter 1, verse 27, 
our text for the message today, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and the text and the title for the message is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Some way or another, they had lost Christ as their focal point. I said in effect last week that it doesn't make any difference what you want to hear. It doesn't make any difference what I would enjoy preaching. The main thing is that the message comes from the Lord, and make no mistake about it, the only kind of preaching and teaching The only thing that's going to keep any church going is to keep the focus on Christ Himself. And when I read these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory, it just leaves me spellbound. It's like opening a door that looks out over a vast expanse with no end in sight. It leaves you you speechless. And yet you feel that you ought to spend the rest of your life talking about it. Because here we find God's answer to history's greatest mystery. Notice it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want you to examine every part of that statement here this morning. I want you to look at it as you would look at the facets of a diamond and see how that each word, each phrase reflects the beauty of the whole. It begins, notice, with the word Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah. And if you examine the preaching of Paul, you'll see very quickly that Christ was always at the very heart of His preaching, and that was for good reason. Christ ought to be at the heart of all preaching. He is the theme of the Bible. There's no subject that could be more wonderful, no subject that could be more important. And if we just began to speak nonstop for centuries, we could never exhaust everything that could be said about Christ. And if you just look at all of the verses leading up to our text, you discover some amazing thing. You look back at verse 13, and it says here that He is God's dear Son. You don't have to wonder who He is. He's God's dear Son. Verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16 tells us He is the Creator of all things. Verse 17 tells us that He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Verse 18 says He's the head of the body, the church. It goes on to say He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And that in all things He might have the preeminence. And then in verse 19 it says, In Him should all fullness dwell. When we come to verse 20 and read down through verse number 22, it changes in that it speaks about not who He is, but what He did. And if we just stop with this wonderful word, Christ, it would be indeed glorious. But there's even more. He doesn't stop there. He says, Christ in you. 
So he's not speaking about Christ in general. We could speak about the fact that in the beginning, you know, in the very beginning that he was, uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by him all things were created, and the Word was made flesh. And we could just go on and on talking about all of those things, but here he's speaking about Christ in you. There's not enough hours in the day to even begin to talk about everything that could be said about that. Christ, Emmanuel, if you will, Emmanuel, God with us, that He might be God in us. Just let that sink in for a little while. The mighty God, the great God, the Creator who made everything, who controls everything, it's speaking about Him being in us. The one whom the heavens cannot contain lives in us. How amazing is that? It is profoundly simple and simply profound. A child can understand the fact that the Bible says Christ is in us. You don't need to make reference to the Greek. You don't need to do research from the historians or any such thing as that. Christ in us. What an amazing statement that is. And yet, as simple as it is for the child, even the greatest scholars can't really wrap their mind around that. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. I'll never forget as a very, very young Christian... When I first become acquainted with this great truth, we were having a revival meeting and a, a, a preacher by the name of Paul Lambert was conducting the services. And uh, so in the evening at six o'clock, instead of the seven o'clock service time, he was doing a special Bible study series. I I'd just recently been saved. I was hungry for the word of God. I, I would attend just any kind of Bible study. I was at everything I could be in attendance at, trying to learn all I could. And it was of such great importance that he wanted to make sure that, that, that it wasn't interrupted, nobody was disturbed. And so the rule was, if you're not in the room by six, the door's locked. It seems like a strange way to conduct a Bible study, but that's what he insisted on. Well, I made sure I was always in the room by six o'clock and and that day, or that week, every evening at 6 o'clock, along with a few others, he began to dig deep into the Scriptures and to explore what it means to think about Christ in us. Some would refer to that as the deeper life. The fact of the matter is, it's the normal Christian life. It's not something that is abnormal for a Christian or it shouldn't be Christ in you years later I was privileged to meet Ian Thomas those of you that uh, have read any of his writings uh, uh, know that the very heart of all of his teaching and preaching had to do with Christ in you I was in Jackson Tennessee Whenever I met him and I sat at his feet and listened to that man expound upon the glories of Christ being in us. How, 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 how can you fathom something like that? Christ in you. But then he doesn't stop there. He says Christ in you 
the hope. Let me, let me stop there for a minute. There's more, but let's stop there. Christ in you, the hope. I, I want you to think about that in general before we look at the point that's made in the text itself. Wouldn't it be terrible to have to live without hope? I lived that way for 24 years, and let me tell you, it's not any fun. These people that have the idea that, you know, that the most important thing is life, you know, that you be free to do whatever you want and to pursue all of your dreams. It's the craziest thing there ever was because none of us have the sense to know how we ought to live. And to think about living every day without hope is awful. And yet, that is exactly where many folks are even today. Thank God we don't have to live without hope. Christ gives us hope. Christ is our hope. So it's not something that He just imparts to us. He is our hope. Notice it says, the hope. It doesn't say a hope, as though He is one of many. It doesn't say Christ is one of the hopes, but He is the hope. And over in Hebrews, we learn that we have a hope that is both sure and steadfast. And you see, because we have this hope, of having Christ within us, it affects us in numerous ways. It affects us, for example, by way of salvation. Because salvation is not a matter of you trying to live for Jesus. A lot of religious people are trying to do that. I mean, they're sincere. I mean, they, they, they're not familiar with what the Bible actually teaches. They've been misled, and they think that the Christian life is all about trying to live for the Lord. And so they regulate their life by certain rules and regulations that, that would put them in the category of being termed as a good person. But it's not about you trying to live like Jesus. It's a matter of Jesus living in you. Your heart becomes His home. In other words, He is your life. He's not just a part of your life. He is your very life. So we have salvation as a result of this hope. We have not only salvation, but we have, we have security. Because when Christ takes up residence in our heart, He never changes His address. He stays there forever and forever. That, that's what we call eternal security. Think about it. Since Christ is our life, and that's what the Bible says, He is our life, right? Since He is our life, the only way that we could lose our salvation is for Him to die or to leave. And that's not going to happen. Because He promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So He is here to stay. He is our life, our eternal life. We have salvation. We have security as a hope because Christ is in us. But in addition to that, we have strength. And boy, do we ever need that. In verse 29, Paul speaks about the fact that God was working in Him mightily. Now, you know, it's one thing for us to discover what our Christian duties are and to do our best to fulfill those obligations. But it's another thing to actually do what the Word of God requires. It's beyond our ability. We need strength to be able to obey 
God's commands. How are you doing with that? Well, you say, I'm doing pretty good on some of them. Well, that's not good enough. We need to be doing okay on all of them. And whenever it talks about us loving others, even our enemies, and forgiving them, that requires a power that is far beyond what you and I have in and of ourselves. We need a strength that will enable us to keep His commands to resist temptation. For a long time after I was saved, I lived in fear every day that I was going to cave in to temptation. And in a manner of speaking, I've lived in that fear for the rest of my Christian life because when you get to the point you think that it couldn't happen to me, you're ready to fall. We all need strength to resist temptation, to keep His commandments, to endure trials. We can't do that on our own. There are people right now going through deep waters and they're on a rough road and they've suffered a great loss and there's no way that they can make it through it without God's help. We need God's help to endure those trials. We need God's help to do God's work. That's why Paul said he, lay, he works in me mightily. Life is so difficult that none of us can succeed on our own. We need the kind of help that only God can give. And with Christ, we already have it. Christ in us, the help is there and available. So He gives us strength, He gives us security, He gives us salvation. We also have the hope that He is our supplier. He supplies our every need. That's what Paul said in Philippians 4, 19, But my God shall supply all of your need according to His riches in glory. Aren't you glad God takes care of His children? Now there are those times that we disobey God and make no mistake about it, God deals with us. But even in doing so, God is meeting the particular need that we have at that moment. And we can live every day of our life knowing that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all of these things, God's going to supply. But the text doesn't end with Christ in you, the hope. It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We hope for a lot of things, don't we? Some folks hope the Texans will win the Super Bowl. They, they hope the Astros will win anything. You know, we're always hoping for this and hoping for that. But this is something that's better than being healthy, better than being wealthy, better than being wise, or anything else you can imagine. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And that comes from a Greek word, the doxa, that speaks about brightness, splendor, excellence, magnificence. For example, if you're speaking about the glory of God, you're talking about the manifestation of any or all of His attributes. In other words, His glory is that which reveals His characteristics. So when we speak about the hope of glory, it has to do with what we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Spurgeon said, Christ in you means you in glory. That's right. But it also means glory in you, by the way. We are as sure of heaven as if we were already there. Brother Kenneth in the lesson this morning was talking about Abraham and Abraham's great faith in God and the questions that Abraham had and the answers that God supplied. And it's interesting that in answering Abraham, God spoke of something that had not yet happened as though it had already happened. And that's exactly the way it is. We can rest assured that God's promises, God's prophecies are all going to come true. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And entering into glory, that's going to be the the conclusion of all of our conflicts. Won't that be a great day? No more conflicts. No more strife. It'll be the consummation of all of God's promises. If you could take all of the promises of God and wrap them all up into, into one phrase, as it were, it would be Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it will be the commencement of eternal glory. That, that's why we love to sing that old song, What a Day That Will Be. Boy, I'll tell you, it'll be some day when we think about not only seeing Jesus, but actually being with Jesus. And in a sense, being even like Jesus, in that we have a glorified body. That's why I keep saying for the Christian, the best is yet to come. We're going to go from grief to glory, from pain to pleasure, from our heartaches to happiness. and that There are no, no words to describe the glory that awaits. That's why... In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How wonderful it is to, to, to live with that anticipation, knowing that the same God who promised to send Jesus and did, The same God who gave His own dear Son on the cross. The same God who raised Him up from the dead. The same God that made all of those promises and kept all of those promises has assured us that one day we'll be in glory and all will be glory. How how can we Christians not be excited about a hope like that? And how can we not be broken hearted over the fact that it's not that way for everyone? I heard my wife tell someone this last week that the greatest thing, most wonderful thing in the world was to lead, lead a child to Christ. And I, I think then she said, well, to lead anyone. But boy, she has a heart for children and no greater joy than to be able to Lead a little one to the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, think about those who, as Paul described them in Ephesians chapter number 2, and he tells us they're without God and without hope. They have no hope of glory. That, my dear friend, is far worse than our mind can imagine. That's the bad news, but the good news is all of that could change today.
That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2.13, but now. He just got through describing their former condition. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. They're without God, without hope. But he said, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. That's why Peter said he's given us a lively, that is a living hope. And since Jesus came into our hearts, we have the hope of glory. And it's in light of all of that, that in chapter 3 of Colossians, in verse 2, Paul says, set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. And whenever we set our affection on things here, it always ends in disappointment. It always leads to distress. It always results in depression. It always ends up with us having an attitude of despair because where do you go and what do you do? There is no other source of satisfaction. No other way of salvation. No other assurance that our needs will be supplied other than Christ in you, the hope of glory. And without Him, what else could we expect other than disappointment and depression and so forth? What would you expect? And sometimes we Christians even, whenever we allow other things to so distract us from the fact the glorious fact that Christ is in us. He's not some God that's out there somewhere. He's in us. And, and yet so many times people don't even spend 30 seconds a day thinking about that or, or the glory that is to come. They don't think about it because they're focused on, on gold instead of glory. They're focused on gladness instead of glory. Just whatever will make them happy. Or maybe they're thinking about attaining greatness. Or it might be they're consumed by their grief instead of thinking about glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Elizabeth Elliot said, I don't know of any more incredible truth in the Bible than that one. And I have to say, Amen. I don't either. How could it be any more wonderful than that? To know that Christ, the dear Son of God, the one that Paul described for us in the first part of that chapter, that He is literally living in us. What a divine provision for man's greatest need. If we went back through history, back to the very beginning of man there in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says, over in Psalms chapter number 8, it tells us that man was created a little lower than the angels, but it says that, he was, that God crowned him with glory and honor. Think about it. Adam and Eve, in the beginning, they were in the glory of the Garden of Eden. God created man in His own image, and God walked with man day by day. So the glory was formed there for man 
at the very beginning. But that glory was forsaken whenever they sinned against God. And their sin separated them from God. And that affected all of us. Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Ichabod is stamped upon the heart of each and every unsaved person. There is no glory there, no fellowship with God. But thank God it's found, it's found in the person of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where we find it. But it's going to be furnished to the fullest extent whenever we get to glory. That verse I read a while ago from Romans chapter 8, he spoke about the glory which shall be revealed in us. Maybe you're here today and you're wondering, well, what is that going to be like? Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 9, describes that. It talks about the 10,000 times 10,000 is all of the saints down through the ages are all gathered around the throne, all focused upon the Son of God there in the pure whiteness of His person. And there as we gather around the throne, the heavenly choir will begin to sing, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb over and over and over. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor. And for all of eternity, our attention is going to be focused upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul spoke about his great difficulties in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he comes down to the end of that chapter, and he speaks to us about the manner in which he was able to survive those difficulties. And he said he did so not by looking at the temporal, but the eternal. Not by looking at things that are seen, but rather the things that are not seen. And then he reminds us there in that very closing verse of that chapter. For the things which are seen, they're, they're just temporary. They're going to pass away but the things not seen are eternal keeping his focus there is what enabled him to keep going and yet as I said earlier there's some folks professing Christians that don't spend 30 seconds a day actually thinking about how wonderful it is to know that Christ is in them. And as a result of that, He is our hope of glory and He is the means whereby that someday we will spend eternity with Him, the King of glory. If you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I beg you today to think about what, what has been said. Maybe you're thinking, well, preacher, I've got so many questions. Well, I've been preaching almost 54 years, and I've still got a lot of questions. Do I understand it all? No, I don't understand it all. I never will, but I know this much. I know that God so loved the world, and that includes me, and that includes you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Isn't that wonderful? 
That whosoever, that, that could be anyone, could be you here today, whosoever believeth, not, not work, not whosoever is baptized, just whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. That word shall is emphatic. We shall be saved. And that could happen to you even here today. Would you trust him this morning? We're going to stand together and we're going to extend this invitation we invite you to come and to receive the Lord as your Savior. If you're here today and you've already been saved, but for some reason, for some reason you've been distracted by the things of the world, it's, it's not gold. You're not looking for that. You're not seeking after greatness. It might be that you've just allowed yourself to get so overwhelmed by grief that you've forgotten who you are and what you have in Christ. And if you're ever going to get back on track, you need to get back to the point that you spend your life looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Would you do that while we sing? You come.